Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the chance to once again uh, open your word for your people. And uh, as we do this, Lord, I pray that my heart would be in the right place and that uh, New Hope's heart would be in the right place. And that's just the posture of humility before you, Lord, that we are not presuming upon our own uh, selves. We're not presuming upon our own righteousness. We're not trusting in our own abilities. We are here as receivers, Lord. And so I pray that for all of us, this would be an act of worship as you conform us to the image of Christ. Help me to preach to your people by your spirit, with all my heart. And I pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this feels a little hot. Is this a little loud? It's not too loud? Okay. All right, because I'm going to start screaming in a minute. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We're, we're walking through a series. This is the fourth sermon in a series that I've called 30,000 feet above the Bible, and this is, I, th- I think this is probably the last sermon in this series, and uh, we are taking one theme, mainly, one theme each week, and then we're walking through five stages of redemptive history, and we're watching the way that that theme uh, unfolds as redemptive history moves along. So I've broken up redemptive history into five stages, and I've given each one a name, and today is test time, because I've been doing the same, the same outline each week, the same uh, structure each week. So I'm curious if anybody remembers what, what I'm calling the first stage of redemptive history, or maybe I'll put it this way. As the theme that we're looking at each week And today's theme, well, I'll tell you what it is in a minute. As we look at the theme being introduced in the scriptures, what is that first stage? The infancy, thank you. The infancy stage, this is where the theme is introduced, and then the theme is developed a little bit in the next phase, and I'm calling that the adolescence. And then the theme continues to be developed as it it kind of flourishes into this prototype called Israel, and we're calling that which stage? The teenage stage. And then we realize that in the teenage stage that things don't quite come to perfect fruition. It really is just a prototype. So the theme continues to develop and it is fulfilled in what stage? The manhood stage or the maturity stage. And then the theme is then applied, the work of Christ who's fulfilled this theme is then now applied to the church because the church is united to Jesus and we're calling that Marriage, the marriage phase. So one theme, five stages, and today's theme is the theme of the obedience of one impacts all. The obedience of one impacts all, and I'm going to start with the obedience of Adam, or the lack thereof. And here's what I want to do. I want to read some snippets from Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Listen for this theme. The obedience of one, or the lack thereof, impacts all. Listen to this. Sin, chapter 5, verse 12 of the book of Romans. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's really interesting. One man sins, and then death comes into the world. Death spreads to all men because 
It says that all sinned. Which means that when Adam sinned, God looked upon it and it was as though all men sinned when he sinned. So we not only inherit the disease of sin, but we also inherit the title of sinner because we're in Adam. We inherit the guilt of Adam. It's as though we were there. It's as though we ourselves took the fruit. It's as though we ourselves ate the fruit. And so we have taken on Adam's identity. We have all sinned. We are sinners. We've taken on Adam's verdict. That is, we are condemned. And we have taken on Adam's reward. That is, death. Listen to chapter 5, verse 15 of the book of Romans. Many died through one man's trespass. Or verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Or verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Or verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Or verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. One, man action, one man's actions counts for his people. His record is credited to their account, and his reward or punishment falls upon them. Now, we could talk about this positively, or we could talk about it negatively. We could talk about how the disobedience impacts all of those people who belong to him. Or we could talk about how the obedience of one man impacts those who belong to him. And you could go through the Bible. You could give give examples of both sides, both the negative and the positive. We're going to stick with the positive side today, other than what we just talked about with Adam. For the most part, I'm just going to stick with positive examples of how the obedience of one impacts all. And we'll continue to look at this theme as it now uh, develops with the flood account. The flood account. And now the theme is entering into its adolescence here. And you can see it in the life of Noah. In Genesis chapter 5, God announces that he's going to bring upon the earth a judgment And he's going to bring this judgment because of the sinfulness of humanity. So let me read to you Genesis 5, I'm sorry, Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Welcome to Noah. The whole earth is uh, being condemned because of sinfulness, but God takes special note of Noah. One man stands out among all men, and this man is considered righteous, or the Bible even uses this word blameless. Now, when the Bible uses these words in this context, 
It doesn't mean that Noah was a man of sinless perfection at the deepest levels of his soul. Uh, When we get a a full biblical teaching about what truly resides in the hearts of humanity because of sin, we know that the Bible is only speaking of Noah's righteousness in relative terms here. What this is saying is that uh, Noah understood what God wanted, and generally speaking, Noah did what God wanted. He walked with God. He, he knew God. Noah obeyed God. And in comparison with his contemporaries, Noah stood out as a righteous and even blameless man. And God took note of it. And God said, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use this man and I'm going to use him as a little picture of a story that I'm going to tell. Something that's going to come into fruition at some point later in Redemptive history. Listen to the result of Noah's righteousness. As it's explained for us in Genesis 7 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. I want you to go into the ark. I want you and your whole household to go into the ark because I have taken note of your righteousness. The righteousness of Noah secures his rescue from the coming judgment. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on the earth, but God is not going to destroy Noah with the rest of humanity. And the reason he's not going to destroy Noah is because of his righteousness. And not only did God spare Noah on account of his righteousness, but God spares Noah's entire household on account of Noah's righteousness. And so here we have an example of of a theme that is going to slowly unfold throughout redemptive history. The obedience of one man impacts all of those who belong to him. All of those who are identified with him. Another important scene in the adolescent years of the theme is recorded for us in Genesis 26 as God renews his covenant promises to Isaac. So the son of Abraham is now being uh, given some promises. God's going to renew these covenant promises. And what I want you to listen for, I'm going to read from Genesis 26. What I want you to listen for is the role that Abraham's obedience plays in the fulfillment of the promises. This is Genesis 26. Verse 3, listen for the role that Abraham's obedience plays. God says to Isaac, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And I will give to your offspring all these lands. In your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice. And kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Because Abraham obeyed, I'm going to fulfill these promises to your children. Now, generally speaking in the Bible, Abraham is regarded as a man of faith, right? You read about this in uh, Romans chapter 4 and uh, Galatians chapters 2 and 3. He's a man who's considered to be righteous in God's sight, not because of what he did, but because of whom he believed in. Abraham believes in God. God counts it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. Not because of anything that Abraham does, but because God is gracious to those who have faith. 
That's the, that's the main story with Abraham's, uh, when, you, when you look back at Abraham and the kind of man that he was, the Bible mainly recognizes him as a man of faith, the father of faith. And certainly this is true from the perspective of Abraham's ultimate standing before God. Certainly Abraham's eternal life is not based upon the merits of his obedience because no sinful man can inherit eternal life on the basis of his own obedience. You cannot earn it. However, with regards to the earthly inheritance of the promised land and with regards to the nationalistic geopolitical inheritance and influence that's given to Israel, the offspring of Abraham, this verse says that Abraham's obedience plays a crucial role in securing these temporal blessings for his descendants. It happened, quote, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. An, Israel, an, an Israelite living in the promised land sometime down the road, let's say under the leadership of Joshua, or under the leadership of Hezekiah, he could wake up, an Israelite could wake up in the morning, pick fruit from his own vine, and be justified in saying something like, God... I thank you for Abraham, and I thank you for Abraham's obedience. Because of what he did, I enjoy the blessings of this inheritance. There's a sense in which you could say that kind of thing as an Israelite based upon Genesis 26. And what we're seeing here again is just this theme of of the obedience of one man The righteousness of one man impacts all of those who belong to him. Now, I have to emphasize, it's very important to realize that both with the situation, uh, with Noah's situation and with Abraham's situation, we're talking about righteousness and obedience in a relative sense. Neither one of these men's righteousness or so-called blamelessness was a perfect blamelessness of the soul in which they had no sin. That's not what we're talking about. God's just drawing a little picture in redemptive history where one man obeys and because of his righteousness there is some sort of blessing that comes to the people who belong to him. The same theme continues to unfold as the nation of Israel develops. And here we are in the teenage years. But in the teenage years, when it comes to Israel and the obedience of one man, you start to see that the obedience that's supremely important in the land of Israel is the obedience of, who would you guess? Who would you guess in the land of Israel is the one man who must be obedient? It's the king. The king of Israel. You see it in certain instances in which the nation is impacted by the king's decisions. Like, for example, you remember in First Chronicles 21, David takes a census, and what does God do? Punishes the whole land because of the one man's disobedience. You see it most clearly, probably, when God speaks directly to Solomon as Solomon prepares to build the temple. God basically says to Solomon that the future of Israel's relationship with God is going to be contingent upon Solomon's obedience to God. Listen to this. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Quote, Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, 
I will then, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel, if you obey. God's promise to fulfill the Davidic covenant, God's promise to dwell in the midst of the people of Israel, his promise to be their guard is contingent upon the obedience of the king of Israel. No pressure, right? Can you imagine that? We're dealing with God Almighty, and if you want to be in his, president, his presence, if you want to be in his presence, the king has to be obedient, or the whole nation is going to suffer. And to some extent, you see some blessing flowing to the nation in Israel, under David and Solomon especially. That's like the golden age of Israel's history. For a brief season, the nation flourishes under their leadership, and occasionally you see a man like Josiah pop up, and he kind of restores the temple, and uh, he does a very Jesus-like act. Josiah finds, uh, jo- Josiah finds the law, and, and, he, and he, res- he cleans the temple up. That's what, kings, that's what kings in Israel did. They kept, the, they kept the nation pure. They cleansed the temple if they were a good king. But the general trend of Israel and Judah's kings is far from righteous. If you've read your Old Testament, righteousness is not how you would describe the kings of Israel. In fact, in the lives of David and Solomon themselves, there are plenty of examples for why they are not the ultimate fulfillment of the need for a righteous man on behalf of the people. So you can take it all the way back to Adam. He fails to resist fruit in the garden. Noah, he gets drunk as soon as he gets off the boat. Abraham, He impregnates Hagar because he's impatient with the promises of God. And then he allows Sarah to be taken into Abimelech's harem, saying that she's merely his sister. David sleeps with another man's wife and then kills him. Solomon, 700 wives, 300 concubines in his heart strays from the Lord. The nation of Israel and the world is waiting for someone, and, 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 and not just anyone, but specifically a king of Israel to fulfill the requirement of the need for an obedient man on behalf of the people. And it brings us, of course, to the manhood stage and King Jesus on behalf of his people. The obedience of King Jesus. Let me give you some snippets from Romans chapter 5. So I started the whole sermon off with Romans chapter 5. I gave you some snippets of one man's disobedience and the outcome of that one man's disobedience with regards to the effects that it has on all of those people who belong to him, Adam and his progeny. Let's hear some snippets from the same chapter on what happens from the obedience of Jesus and the outcome that it has on those who belong to him. Romans 5.15. The free gift is not like the trespass. The grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
So the obedience of one leads to grace for all of those who belong to him. Romans 5.18. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Romans 5.19. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's a complete reversal. This is where we see Jesus acting as the second Adam. Jesus is doing what Adam failed to do. Where Adam's sinfulness had an impact on all those who belonged to him, Christ's obedience has an impact on all those who belong to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of today's theme. The obedience of Christ counts for all his people. And before we talk about how that impacts us, the, sp- the specific ways in which that impacts us, I want to make sure that we take a moment to consider what the obedience of Jesus consisted of. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it's worth pausing on for a few minutes. Jesus obeyed. Obeyed what? What, what is that? What does that obedience look like? I want to point out two elements of the obedience of Jesus. Theologians sometimes distinguish between what they call the active obedience of Jesus and the passive obedience of Jesus. So let me start with the active obedience of Jesus. The active obedience to Jesus is Jesus' obedience to God's law. I think of it that way. Jesus is obedient to God's law. Jesus has perfect love for God. Jesus has perfect love for neighbor. Jesus is faithful to be what humanity is supposed to be, what humanity is created to be. Jesus fulfills everything that God expects people to do. And maybe one way to help clarify this point is to to just point out that Jesus did not die for us as a baby. Jesus, Jesus did not uh, simply come and be born and then die in the stable. If he had, it seems that he would not have accomplished the redemption. Maybe uh, we could say it this way. Jesus was not merely innocent. He was not merely free from defilement. He did not merely have a blank slate. It's not merely as though Jesus didn't sin. All of that is true. But it's not merely the case that he has a blank slate. He had to live a life of active obedience to what God commands to humanity. He had to perform righteousness. He had to fulfill the covenantal requirements needed to secure eternal life. He had to obey God's law as the second Adam and as the true Israel. That's what we refer to when we talk about the active obedience of Jesus. Now let's compare that to what theologians refer to as the passive obedience of Jesus. This is Jesus' obedience to the Father's call for him to suffer. So Jesus not only fulfills God's law, not only does he love God perfectly, not only does he live a life of love for neighbor perfectly, but also in obedience to God, he willingly suffers the penalty for sin. In his obedience, Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. 
There's nothing in the law of Moses that says you have to die on a cross because of somebody else's failure. Jesus is not obligated to do that simply by virtue of the law of God. This isn't what you'd normally think of as a requirement that God has placed upon humanity. So Jesus is going above and beyond in his obedience. He's not just buying life for us. He's paying the late fee as well. Jesus' obedience goes above and beyond his fulfillment of the righteous standards of God's law. He obeys his Father when his Father calls him to fulfill the demands of the law, and in addition, when God calls him to suffer the punishment that we deserve because of our failure to obey God's law. And now this brings us to this final marriage stage where the benefits of what Christ has done are now given to the church. So how does the obedience, the active and the passive obedience of Jesus, how does it apply to our lives? Well, I I suppose we could say it like this. In Jesus' passive obedience, in his willingness to suffer the punishment that we deserve, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, he purchases our forgiveness, and he gives us a blank slate. So you're back to zero. Does that make sense? Jesus' passive obedience, his willingness to obey and pay your penalty, brings you back to zero. You're out of debt. And if that's all that Jesus did, then it would be up to you and I to fulfill the law of God. I mean, we'd have a blank slate. That'd be wonderful. It's better than being in debt. But we would still be responsible to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And we would still be responsible to love our neighbors as ourselves. We would still have to produce a positive record of righteousness. Does that make sense? And you know as well as I do that that would be a huge problem. It's not good enough to just have your account leveled out. Thankfully, Jesus not only paid our penalty, but he's also fulfilled all righteousness through his active obedience. And since we're united to Jesus, the record that's in his account has been imputed to our account, which means that when God looks at the ledger, so to speak, our account is not merely zeroed out, but it's full to the brim with treasure. You and I are presented as perfect law keepers because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus to our accounts. Therefore, because of his obedience, if we're trusting in Jesus, then his passive obedience which paid our debt and his active obedience will fulfill, which fulfills all obligations because of those things if we're trusting in Jesus we are declared righteous in the sight of God so here's how Paul says it in Romans 5 we just read this by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous your debt is paid And all your obligations are fulfilled. So the Father looks at you and says, righteous. Now, how do you gain access to that gift? How is it that a person has their sins taken away and has Christ's record of perfect obedience credited to their account? Romans 3.28 says it like this. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, to be justified means to be declared righteous. 
You stand in the court. It's a verdict in the courtroom. You get one of two verdicts in the courtroom of God. God looks at the evidence and then he makes a decision and he either says, you're condemned or you're righteous. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It's a technical term in the courtroom, lang- courtroom language that the Bible uses. So Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith, by faith, apart from the works of the law. We are declared righteous by faith. And my prayer for us this afternoon is that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes so that we'll see how earth-shattering that kind of verdict is in the courtroom of God. And the fact that we have access to that verdict simply by faith. Simply by faith. God is not merely saying to us, I find you without guilt, but he's saying to us, I see you, son, daughter. I see you and that you have fulfilled my law perfectly. That's what I see in you. That, I mean, that's amazing. Can you imagine that? John, perfect law keeper. James, perfect law keeper. Roger, perfect law keeper. How do you get that verdict? By faith. You just trust in Jesus, and that's what your account reads. That's earth shattering. God, help us see it. This is our gospel. This is what we proclaim. That's why it's such good news. You can't earn that. You can't gain that by anything that you do. You only gain it on the basis of what he did. And do you trust it or do you not? Do you trust him or do you not? If you do, it's yours. That's, that's it. That's the gospel. And therefore, your father is very pleased with you. He is so impressed with what he sees in you because what he sees is the merit of his son. What he sees is the worthiness of Jesus Christ. You can have the full pleasure of God directed at you, and it's not based upon your performance. It's not based upon your obedience, which is good news, because some days your obedience is good, and some days it's crap. In fact, in the sight of God, every day it's crap. The obedience of Jesus, it's perfect, and it's finished. It's perfect, and it's finished. He already won the race, and therefore the Father sees you as having already won the race as well. You are a righteous victor in Christ. So I have a few points of application. They're pretty simple. This is, ba- this is basic. This is Christianity 101. And if there's any part of your heart that's going, this is so awesome, it's because you need Christianity 101 every day of your life. 
You need this reminder. Four simple points of application. Number one, we cannot earn God's favor. The reason that we obey God is never, ever, ever in order to secure the favor of God. It's never to secure God's favor. We've talked a lot about obedience in the last three years, haven't we? We went through the the book of 1 Corinthians. It talks a lot about obedience. It even gives some warnings for disobedience. We went through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks a lot about obedience in the Sermon on the Mount, even warning us that if we're not obeying, then that should function kind of like a check engine light in your car. You know, something's not working right under the hood if you're living a life of disobedience. But at no point does the New Testament ever teach us That obedience is the means by which God's favor is earned by us. The Father's favor must be earned, but not by you. It was earned by the obedience of Jesus. And he's the only one that could offer that kind of life to God. He's the only one who could offer a life to God that is worthy of being praised by God. Being celebrated by God. Jesus is the only one to whom it can be said on the basis of his own merits, on the basis of his own performance, on the basis of his own obedience. Jesus is the only one of whom it can be said, Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy. We cannot merit the Father's favor, but we can have the Father's favor. And the way we access life is not on the basis of our obedience, but through faith in the one who finished the race already. We cannot earn God's favor. And because of that, the second point of application, we cannot boast. We cannot boast in the sight of God. Paul makes a big deal out of this in a lot of different points. Romans 3, 27 and 28. What then becomes of our boasting in light of this gospel? What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You're declared righteous apart from your works. You're declared righteous only by trusting in the Savior. If our right standing with God cannot be earned by our good works, then we have no room for boasting, and that means there's no room for any pride. We didn't earn this, and we don't deserve this. And therefore, application point number three, God gets the glory. God gets all the glory for our salvation. And that's what this is all about. God saves us in such a way so as to preserve the glory of his own name in salvation. There is no explanation for why we have been saved other than the unmerited grace of God directed at you for who knows what reason. That's what grace is all about. And the better we grasp the unmerited nature of our salvation, the better we understand just how amazing God's grace is. And the better we understand just how amazing God's grace is, the more we're going to see the gloriousness of God's love for us. And the more that we see the glorious of God's love for us, the more we are going to worship him. And the more that we worship him because of his gracious love to us, which was given to us apart from anything that we have done, the more that we worship him, the more he gets glory. And that's what this is all about. 
God's glory in salvation. We cannot earn his favor. The story of the Bible is a story in which one man, the Son of God, does everything that we have failed to do so that we might gain everything that he deserves. And in the end, it all culminates in praise to God from the people who have been rescued by his amazing grace. We cannot earn it. We cannot boast. God gets all the glory. And therefore, point number four, and I'll close with this, show and tell the world. Show and tell the world how amazing the grace of God is by the way that you live your life. Show and tell the world how amazing the grace of God is in the gospel by showing people that he's wonderful in the way that you live your life and by testifying to that grace in the way that you speak. This is good news. This is good news. I want it to impact my life to the point where I'm going to show and tell. I want it to impact your life to the point where you will show and tell. It will be as natural for you to tell people about Jesus as it is for you to worship Jesus on Sunday. Because you're amazed. Because you're amazed. Let's pray.